Episode 29, The Story of the Many Who Did Not Listen and the Few Who Did. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. The Bible is the story of the multitudes who did not listen to God and of the few who did. And chances are, if you're like most people, you're not as good at listening as you may think you are. The topic today may be one of the most important things you've ever considered. It's a topic that reaches from the beginning of the Bible story to its end and may well be one of the most uh, thematic threads that runs through the Bible. So far, I've tried to cover smaller topics mostly, as I lay the foundation for the content of this podcast, but today is a far-reaching study, and it will surely prompt more questions than answers, yet the goal of it is to get a couple of points that are so utterly important that they are worthy of our attention, even if it raises other questions. I think that the Bible is, when considered from one particular angle, a story of a great many people not listening to God, and of a few who learned along the way, even after rough beginnings, to listen to Him. It is the story of those who did not listen, and of those who did. It is the story of a God who longed to bless people He had created, but who would insist that they be righteous, and who, like any good parent, was was not going to bless them if they did not conduct themselves according to His wishes for them. I think it's a story of people weighing out just what their priorities were, whether they were interested in living in God's image according to his plan, or whether they didn't want to listen to any of them and just wanted to do things their own way. It's the story of the amazingly patient God who even dared to explain ahead of time how he was going to discipline people if they did not listen, so as to impress upon them the great value of the treasures that could be theirs if only they would choose godliness rather than worldliness. Ultimately, it is the story of those who did listen, and of how he would shower blessings upon them quite freely and joyously. But even today, even in the churches, the millions and millions of churches, there are still few who really listen. There are few who really hear. You can tell a great deal about a person by finding out who all he or she will listen to, that is, will really listen to. Who does he or she respect? 
who has influence over that person? Who can change that person's mind? Who can get their head turned around? To whose correction will they listen? Whose points will they consider, really consider? Who do they want to emulate? So here it is, the uh, Easter week, uh, what some people call a holy week. And uh, perhaps you're thinking about uh, the upcoming celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Well, today, uh, that, of course, was the event to which uh, most of the world did not listen and has not since listened. Uh, Even among many who say they have, oh, yeah, I know Jesus. I'm so glad for his resurrection. They, um, not many, seem to really let Jesus be Jesus. They try rather to make him into somebody they would like better or that they think they would like better. And so uh, today's episode is quite about a lot of that, even though it may not be exactly an Easter thing, but we're going to uh, deal with some of the sayings of Jesus that happened even during that uh, last week or in those last weeks and about uh, his uh, crucifixion and such. So I hope that uh, this will be uh, really uh, useful to you. It's a far-reaching study and probably won't be finished in one episode, but I've got enough today, I think, for a good uh, discussion, and we'll just go from there. Now, thinking and listening, uh, considering things, all that is a skill. It's cognitive, a cognitive skill set. Of course, we have to learn some, some mindware, like language. You have to know at least one language. And you have to know how to think about things if you're going to be good at thinking about things. And that's a whole set of mindware that comes with things like logic or um, uh, even uh, knowing the order of things. Uh, You have to know a little bit about math to do some math kind of problems, uh, probability, statistics, anything like this. Uh, These are mindware type issues. There's sets of uh, understanding that If you have them, you can think through things well that you can't think through well without them. So I don't mean to get particularly over-scientific in all of this, um, but we are talking about thinking skills. And, of course, the the second thing is the thinking willingness. Am I willing to think through a thing, whether I know how to do it well or not? And so, again, this is all about listening today, uh, about receiving, about... um, giving fair consideration to uh, this or that. Well, I deal with this a lot in a very practical sense. I teach students in several classes. I have done it for the last few years. I teach things like public speaking and skits and choral classes, singing, uh, things like this. I've done some reality-based thinking, teaching. I'm getting ready for a constitution course. And so I've been uh, accustomed to the classroom, and I've been trying to pay attention as I go. And I run into lots of problems with thinking, uh, with, with people, and they're not listening, not uh, being ready to receive new ideas or to deal with them. And I do know from my study in cognitive science since 2012 or 2011 that this is really quite a large problem in our culture. It's not just, oh, I happen to have a couple of students who are a little slow to pick things up, but that this is very common across our culture. We have a lot of data about that, and I certainly don't want to go into all that today. Uh, Let me say that I think it probably suffices for now to say that you could think about people you know who don't listen well, 
And that's what I'm talking about. Now, the question, of course, is whether you do the same things yourself. Uh, and you probably do. Uh, I certainly do. I make that mistake from time to time. I try not to make it. I don't want to make it. Uh, but uh, I'm prone to that just like everybody else is. And so what I want to talk about today is how these kinds of issues are super common, even in the churches, even among Bible students, even among well-meaning Christians who have lots of things to love in their character, uh, but we still can have uh, some listening problems. But let me just talk about a few practicals of things that I see in my own experience. And there could be many other examples, but these will probably do. Uh, so I wanted to, I made myself a few notes here. Pardon me if I seem a little sketchy in my, uh, in my, deliberately, in my delivery. <clears throat> uh, one of the issues we have, I have on the, on the back room, of, on the back wall of my classroom, a, a small uh, black box, like it's in a picture frame, and it is a sound level meter. So it measures uh, what sound it's hearing in decibels, and uh, it will tell you uh, how loud the room is at any given time. Well, with skits and with public speaking and with singing, all three have to do with vocalizing, uh, it's very common to find students who have not learned how to project and to make a loud sound that can be easily heard by an audience. And so this, of course, is a killer in a play when you can't hear the lines or in a speech when you can't hear uh, everything they're saying. Uh, and, of course, in singing when they won't sing loud and get a rich sound. So this is a constant issue. And uh, Kay, my wife, bought a, um, this device for us. And so I put the students on the stage. The device is on the back wall opposite uh, on the other side of the room. And I uh, make them count to 10 such that the... Uh, the meter reads at 70 or above consistently throughout. And every student can do it. Uh, however, <laughs> having done this exercise, even weekly sometimes, I still find that students habitually go back to speaking much softer or singing much softer than what they're doing. And so why aren't you getting this? And right, and so the question is, well, you can... You understand what we're talking about, and you show that you understand it because you can talk louder on demand, and yet when we go back to reading your lines for the play or, or whatever else we're doing, uh, you're, not, you're not still doing the thing. So have you really got it? Have you really got the message that, no, this is for all the time. This is for all of your public speaking. It's for the whole skit. It's not just for... Uh, performance, but also for the rehearsals, right? And a lot of people just don't get that quickly. They, they may get it, and I, I definitely have some students who are doing much better than they did before, but it often takes quite a while for somebody to get that message. Now, if it were somebody like Lieutenant Commander Data from Star Trek, you could tell him once, and he'd be okay. And, uh, you know, setting internal volume controls to, you know, 70 decibels or higher, uh, something like that. But uh, people don't always get the point, even when you sit them down and talk to them about it. And so that's the kind of thing. And I get this a lot. I get it, um, you know, even in the tone quality of somebody singing, I'll get some, uh, some sort of airy thing. And I'll say, no, let's go, ah, uh, you know, a richer sound. And they'll say, ah, uh, just, <laughs> just again, as if uh, that wasn't exactly the same as the first time they did it. 
So they think that they're doing better, but they're not. They don't know how to monitor themselves well and to see what's the outcome. Uh, so I'll tell them, you know, in a skit to say a line differently. Uh, they'll say, good morning, how are you? And I'll say, how about a little expression? You know, good morning, how are you? And they'll say, good morning, how are you? <laughs> and I'll say, was that better? They'll say, oh yeah, sure it was. You know, and this is, this goes on and on. This is uh, how people learn to be better actors uh, by being sort of run through the routines like that and, and uh, testing what they do, giving a, a better alternative and then challenging them to live up to that better one. We have a, uh, an example right now we were just messing with yesterday. I thought I'd share this. And of course, the student's going through the process just like everybody else. But the line is, do you have a copy of such and such, uh, some book or other in a skit? And the words, do you have a, are coming out, diava, 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 like D-Y-A-V-A. And so um, we stopped several times. Hey, uh, are you aware how that sounds, what's coming out, this diava sound? And uh, the student can say, well, oh, okay, <laughs> right? But still, it takes many, many times going through it to get it straight. Uh, so that it comes out nicely and is well enunciated. Uh, singers often don't listen to the pitches that they're supposed to be singing. So rather than do, re, mi, that's do, re, mi, and just sort of you know growling along, uh, they may think they're listening, but they're not really hearing the pitches to understand before they start to sing. And then even uh, once they start to sing, they're not often or they're often not uh, paying attention to the pitch that's actually coming out of their mouths so that they can compare it to the original pitch that they should have been paying attention to as well. So these are just technical things in, in what I do, but the idea is that, okay, these principles are not getting through very quickly. And of course, in a perfect world, a student comes in, you mention a thing once, like, hey, got it, boss, and then there's never a problem with it again. But in the real world, uh, these things take a lot of practice. And... Um, People, again, are not very good, generally speaking, at analyzing themselves, at observing themselves, at being aware of their own performance, their own behaviors, their own habits, and their own skills and such. Uh, one thing that's uh, well-known in cognitive science is that people tend to overestimate their own skills, knowledge, and abilities. And indeed, they do. I see this myself, and if you were to look carefully, I'm sure you would see it quite often. My wife, Kay, is an educational philosopher, and she is convinced that children aren't as able to listen as they were in previous generations before there was such an explosion of visual media to be looked at, where children used to listen to stories being read aloud with scarcely an illustration to be looked at. Today, they will report that they find a story boring if it's not accompanied with visual media, you know, pictures, video, uh, that sort of thing. Why can't they just use their minds to imagine the story they are hearing like a great many previous generations of humans did? Have we been catered to so much that we're now losing our mental capabilities in this way? Is this some form of mental atrophy? Like muscles, when you don't use them for a long time, they grow considerably weaker. Well, I suspect this may be. So whether this strikes you as a spiritual issue or not, uh, learning to listen is crucial uh, regardless. It's uh, crucial in, in 
education and in the arts and in relationships and in spiritual matters uh, too. Uh, learning how to examine a thing, how to imagine it, how to consider it, how to ponder it, how to envision it, uh, what it means, how it works. All these things are part of a good education. They're part of the wisdom of the ages, the kind of things that people ought to be able to get better and better at as they mature in life. Uh, I'll remind you of the, the quote uh, attributed uh, perhaps dubiously to Aristotle, but it goes like this. It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. So here he's talking about, okay, well, I don't think the guy's right, but let me listen to what the guy's saying. I'll entertain this. We'll put it on the table. We'll turn around. We'll look at, look at it from all different angles and really give it a good once-over. And he says educated people can do that. I wouldn't have said it the same way. Um, in my generation, I would have said that reflective people can do that because you can be quite educated in our culture and not yet be a reflective person. <laughs> so uh, anyway, the question, are our kids today saying, uh, no thanks, I won't entertain this story because it doesn't have enough pictures? In other words, they could think through and they could, they could imagine what that giant looked like or the beanstalk or the three bears in their beds. They could imagine that, but they won't because there's no pictures. And so, well, you haven't imagined it for me and drawn a picture of it for me. Therefore, I won't do it. Uh, no thanks. Boring. And then another question, are adults doing that same thing for various reasons? Well, uh, I hear you have a message there, Jack, but I don't like your tone. <laughs> or, well, um, I just don't have time for this. I have to go do something else. Or, or whatever the other reason might be, are they not listening? For example, uh, might somebody say, uh, no thanks, but I won't entertain what you're saying because it doesn't make me feel emotionally secure or because it disagrees with what I already happen to believe. See, it couldn't possibly be worth my time because it doesn't seem already catered to me. Well, I think that our culture is very bad at listening, and certainly there are exceptions, so please understand I'm talking generally here, and hopefully you are an exception to that. I think also this is a problem in most of the churches. Even if they're good at listening to one thing, they may stay hardened to some other crucial matter. And this is a very serious problem. One of the big challenges in life is that of deciding, well, what to listen to and what not to listen to and what the priority should be. And this is not just a one-time event. It's a daily need. This is not a thing that you just do once on some Thursday and and you say, oh, great, I got that out of the way. I, I learned what to listen to, what not to, and what should be the priority. You know, set it and forget it. No, it's not like that. It's a daily need, and your track record has a great deal to do with what kind of person you turn out to be. So let's get into the scriptures about this. There's plenty of um, uh, introduction, I hope, to what I want to talk about. But I want you to see, I, I'm very excited about how this plays out in the scriptures. And with my opening lines about the Bible being a story of people who listened and people who did not. So, um, talking about listening problems, uh, Adam had a problem. Genesis 3, verse 17. Uh, and this is God uh, after they have eaten the forbidden fruit. And God is saying to Adam, 
because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. So here we have God um, issuing a curse of sorts to Adam. But we need to be good thinkers about this. Some would stop their understanding at the line, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, period. Well, that's nonsense. Uh, the, the issue here was not that Adam listened to Eve, but that he listened to Eve in a matter where she's contrary to what God had already commanded. So in other words, Adam had the wrong priority. He knew what God had said. They'd already discussed it on the record, so it, we know that they knew. Uh, and yet, when it came down to a choice between what Eve was telling him to do and what God had told him, he chose the wrong one. So he picked the wrong priority. And of course, this has big, big uh, implications for everything. Uh, but Adam wasn't the only one in the story. Eve had done the same thing. Uh, Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And this is me breaking in here. Of course God did not say that. God picked out this one particular tree and had made that off limits. So the question of Satan here is deceiving. And then uh, he is, he's twisting. He's setting things up with the question. And so going on, verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she's right. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, I'm going to break in here again. I've been wanting to talk about this one for a long time, although not for the same reason as today, although it turns out that it fits quite nicely. Look what goes on here. Uh, Eve tells him that God says, oh, we can eat of the trees generally, but not of the one in the middle of the garden, and you shouldn't even touch that one lest you die. Well, God is not on record as having said that anywhere in the story, even though the story does previously mention the prohibition against that tree. He never said anything about touching it. So where's she getting this from? And I'm going to suggest to you that this is a cognitive error. Now, that doesn't fit with a lot of people's uh, philosophy about all this because a lot will tell you, oh, Adam and Eve were perfect. Uh, they were like superhumans in some way. They were more than we could ever understand as humans until the day that they sinned and then it all fell apart and it was the fall, dun, 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 right? And a great deal is made out of the fall that I don't necessarily find in the text. I think it gets sort of romanticized and exaggerated into something that wasn't really in every sense. And so it's quite a large topic and I'm certainly not going to get into it today, uh, but this looks to me like a cognitive error. Now, Eve, of course, had been uh, commanded by Adam or by God or by both. And you can go back and study it out and find out what are all the details, but this much is obvious that uh, he's not on record as having said, don't touch it, and yet she says, don't touch it. So, question, did she get this from God or from Adam or from Eve? 
from herself. Is this somebody, for instance, uh, what they say, putting a hedge around the law? Well, I'm not supposed to eat it. Therefore, I'm going to be really smart and say, yeah, don't even touch it. Yet here she puts that in the mouth of God, and we don't have God on record as having said that. Now, maybe she knows something we don't know, or maybe she made this up, or maybe Adam made this up to keep Eve in line. Oh, well, I can't just tell her, don't eat it. I know, I'll I'll also tell her, don't even touch it. Okay, and then there's this problem, unless you die. Uh, God did not say exactly. You know, he'd said the thing on the day you eat of it, uh, you shall surely die, some translations say, but this is quite poor. The Hebrew is awkward to the English. It says, uh, or you will dying die. And the grammar there, which I don't want to get into deeply, but it describes that you will die. Yeah, in what way? You will die dying. Well, what's the idea? Uh, It's what we see all the time. Uh, Some of us die in a car crash instantly at 20 years old, but most of us dying die. We wear out. We fade away uh, physically until we are no longer alive. And this is what was promised there. So you can't do that in the day you eat of it, mind you. You can't grow old and die of old age in a day. That's not how that works. Uh, Dying of old age happens over a period of years. So uh, (laughs) this it's a very common uh, error in reading this passage. Of course, most of the translations don't help well. And so they leave uh, false impressions with people. But Eve's been told, don't eat it. We don't know whether Adam told her, don't touch it, or whether she told herself, don't touch it. But she's here putting these words in the mouth of God. So somebody made an error. Uh, Either Adam exaggerated with her, or she's exaggerated herself. And who knows? Is she making a show here of the serpent to try to Pretend she's wiser or more pious than she is. We just don't know. So this is difficult for us. And yet, this line doesn't belong here, that you shall uh, shall not touch it. And then the less you die is not correct either. And so it goes on, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, this is part true and part false. And, of course, that makes the whole thing a lie because he's trying to get her to sin against God. That's his motive, and that's what she's going to end up doing. And so, uh, for the record, Satan will often use parts of the truth into a twisted lie. Uh, Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You know, and and I just got to say this right here. (laughs) Uh, Bad assumptions that people make and trying to make sense of Bible passages. When you get a little farther along in the story and God comes and questions them, what have you done? And he gets to Adam, oh, the woman you gave me, uh, she gave me uh, the fruit and I ate it. And so many insist on saying, oh, see, he's blaming it on her. 
well, wait a minute. Uh, maybe he was, but I don't think you can get that from this. He is telling the truth about what happened, is he not? Did she not give it to him? Yes. Did he not eat it? Yes. Did God not give the woman to Adam? Yes, he did. Okay, so there's nothing untrue in what Adam says, and yet many decide that they will call this him blaming it on, on Eve. But I'm sorry, I just don't see that in the text. I think that you're working some sort of bias there where you want the, uh, the guy to be guilty of a thing that uh, maybe a lot of men are guilty of this sort of behavior. Uh, women are too. And so, and obviously not everyone, uh, not every man, not every woman does that. So I don't see the blame shifting, although that's very popular to see that and say, uh-huh, look at that. <laughs> but uh, I think you're cheating when you do that. You don't have enough evidence to support that um, conclusion. So she gives it to him, he eats, and now they're both in trouble. So uh, again, the problem, Adam listened to his wife rather than God, uh, as if it were difficult to figure out which one would be the better authority on the issue. Uh, Eve listened to Satan, to the serpent. Um, in Hebrew, this is Hanakash, and I am so not a Hebrew guy, uh, but I've learned enough, studied enough uh, to know it means the shining one. And it's a very interesting subject to look at it. I do not believe this was a snake. I believe here the Bible is using this word serpent uh, or Hanakash to speak figuratively about this entity that we know as Satan. And so that, of course, is a big can of worms, and that's quite another study. And you can look to Michael Heiser for that. who's a Hebrew scholar who deals a lot with this. Uh, he has... Lots of references and such, and I don't uh, think he's right about everything that he says, and yet I have learned a great deal from his work. So um, so you can look into that. Search Michael Heiser and Nakash, N-A-C-A-S-H. You can find a lot at YouTube. You can also find a lot just through uh, DuckDuckGo or Google or other search engines. So who else had a problem with listening? Uh, here's a one-liner or so from Genesis 16.2 about Abram, uh, before his name had been changed to Abraham, and Sarai, before she was Sarah. Uh, I'll just read you this one-liner, and we'll go from there. And Sarah, uh, Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. Uh, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham, or Abram, listened to the voice of Sarai. And, of course, if you know the story, this did not turn out well. God had already promised them they'd have a kid, and they're they're trying to make it come true on their own terms rather than uh, listening to God and letting God uh, do it in the way that he had in mind. And so if you don't know the rest of the story, you can go read that. It's in Genesis 16. And uh, so there you go on that one. Uh, how about Moses? In his day, what was going on? Here's um, a verse from uh, Exodus 6, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now, this one's very interesting because it doesn't say that it was because they were hard-hearted and stiff-necked and such. In this case, uh, these people at this time were not listening. And, and trust me, they'd have plenty of other opportunities to not be listening. Uh, and they seized upon those uh, frequently. But this time, 
It was because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery that they were enduring. They just weren't listening. This is probably what a cognitive scientist would call ego depletion. Um, and uh, pardon those who uh, might think this is cursing. I don't. But uh, I want to let you know that uh, some cognitive scientists will uh, informally call it the what the hell effect. As in, you know, look, I'm just giving up, whatever. Yeah, go ahead and eat the cake. I, I already blew my diet this morning. You know, I shouldn't have had the extra banana that I ate. And so why not just have the cake, right? It's so it's the idea of ego depletion where yourself is just sort of deflated and um, you're not trying your best. You're not um, on, your, on your A game, so to speak. So uh, here we have a problem with Israel not listening here. And of course, uh, Israel got, uh, they found lots of other reasons not to listen. Uh, in fact, uh, we'll continue about that uh, a lot in this uh, talk today. Uh, Pharaoh had a problem not listening. Uh, Exodus 7, verse 13. Uh, still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. This is after Moses had been doing um, some miraculous things to rattle the cage of Pharaoh that, hey, you'd better let God's people go. But it says, uh, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. God had told them that Pharaoh's not going to listen. So um, the Israelites also had a problem listening to the lesser gods instead of to Yahweh. And a lot of the Bible is about this problem. Now, we've mentioned this only briefly in quite some number of episodes ago about um, what uh, Michael Heiser would call the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Uh, this idea you need a little bit of background for in, other, in order to understand like pretty much the whole rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that is, uh, you're all quite familiar, I'm sure, that God uh, created angels and humans. Uh, it wasn't just humans. There were angels. We read a lot about them in the Bible in various ways. And yet today, they don't seem to be a thing. Now, a lot of people will tell you they are. Oh, yeah, I saw an angel. Oh, an angel saved me from my car wreck. Uh, but then a lot of people tell you a lot of things, too, that aren't true, like the speaking in tongues business, where they're actually just saying gibberish, and it's not a real other language like it was in the New Testament uh, period where they were speaking in tongues. So it's not the same thing. And uh, so today people have angel stories, but I don't think they're still here. And, of course, this is another big can of worms, but, hey, <laughs> I can't talk about anything without... Uh, without touching on other subjects that are uh, begging to be looked into further. <clears throat> anyway, uh, God had uh, created a lot of beings, and it seems that he used them to administer the earth, to look over the earth and mankind and such. I think there was more of that going on than a lot of people do. Uh, Dr. Heiser uh, calls it the divine council, and of course he has a, a passage of scripture in Psalm 82, that refers to it in that way. Uh, so uh, the idea is that God has angels who are sort of on God's team and helping him out. And of course, some of these angels rebel, others do not. Uh, eventually, uh, and you'll read this in uh, Deuteronomy 32, and we're going to read it in just a second, you'll see that uh, God, after the Tower of Babel incident, where he's told mankind to spread out, and a lot of them were like, nah, we're going to stay here and make a name for ourselves. And God says, okay, 
that's it. If I let these people keep going, nothing will be impossible to them. I'm going to have what I want. They're going to spread out over the earth. Uh, and that's that. So what does he do? Well, he confuses their languages, which I think we're being told that he instantaneously creates a whole bunch of new languages and uh, makes the people know these new languages and not the old one anymore. So they could not communicate with one another. Fine. They split up. They go their own ways. They split out and go across uh, that Mediterranean Sea region and where there were 70 or 72 uh, nations that were started then. And then each of those nations uh, he puts under the control of some angel type or other. And uh, these were a higher class of angel called the sons of God. And so they had charge over the nations, except one exception. God kept Israel for himself. And you're certainly familiar with this when it comes to that phrase that they were God's chosen people. So this is how the big picture fits together. A lot of people don't know this, so it may be kind of overwhelming to you, or what did he just say? But let me read you the passage from Deuteronomy 32 in verse 7 and 8. Now, this is, of course, Moses talking to the very people that we're talking about now, and we're going to talk a lot about Israel today. And so he's telling them in their day, he's telling them this, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, so he's talking about things that happened many generations before these people that he's talking to. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High, that's God, he is the Most High of all the gods. Well, if you don't have other gods, you can't have high. Now, those gods are the angels. Uh, uh, and so anyway, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And uh, you should know there's an ongoing debate. Oh, the sons of God, that's a reference to righteous humans. And others are like, mm, no, I don't think so. It's that higher class of angel types that God had uh, created and had put in charge over the nations here. So uh, I agree with the latter. I think there's a very strong case to be made for that, a very weak case that this is a reference to uh, human beings. Uh, and so uh, I think what we have here, and uh, Dr. Heiser uh, has spent his career uh, fleshing this out, that what you have here is a situation where Yahweh, the Most High God, uh, he is unlike all of the others. He is the creator, creator of them, and so they are just creatures of his. <clears throat> But uh, they have been put in charge of the nations of the world from that Babel event. And so God is going to keep Israel for himself. And uh, they're his chosen people. And all the other people now are under the rule of these angels. So if you just stop and think about this for a minute, this means that a lot of the mythological gods that you hear about were real beings like Zeus, for instance, which you would know from Greek mythology. If you know about anybody, you probably know about Zeus. Well, that's a real being. And so these mythologies, while they may not be true in every respect, are probably not false in every respect. 
And here you have the Bible talking about this too. So maybe this is rattling your cage uh, pretty bad. Maybe you're okay with this. Don't know. But um, we have to talk about that to talk about the rest and make good sense of it. So here you have God handing over the nations, but he's keeping Israel for himself. Well, yea for Israel, right? I mean, this ought to be great for them, right? Well, uh, think about what would be the qualities of those gods, those lesser Elohim. Uh, I suppose I should explain that a little bit. Elohim is a word often used for God in the Bible. It's, a, it's more of a, a title than it is a name. It is uh, the description of beings who live in the spiritual realm, not from here, not earthlings. This is how the Hebrews would talk about beings that were not humans, uh, living in the human body, doing normal human everyday things. Uh, they, would, um, they would talk about God, you know, Yahweh this way, but they would also talk about angels this way. They would sometimes talk about the dead this way, disembodied human spirits. So this is about people not here doing the normal human things. That's what Elohim are. And of course, the greatest of all the Elohim is obviously God, uh, Yahweh, who was the creator of everybody. So he's got Israel <laughs> and all the other nations are off under these other gods, some of whom were, I think, loyal to Yahweh and some were not, perhaps, or their loyalty would stray over time. The nations would get in trouble. And that is a huge uh, topic to be tracked down and far beyond the scope of what we can do today and certainly beyond the scope of my knowledge. So this is what I'm still working on uh, in my studies. Okay, so let's talk about the nation of Israel. You know, uh, God gets them out of Egypt. They were in slavery there under uh, some of these other gods. And uh, so now he's pulling them out and he's got to tell them, okay, look, uh, here's the change of rules. You're my people. And uh, you're not going to do that other stuff that those other gods said. I'm your God. I'm the one and only true God. I'm the creator of all. And I'm not just one of those underling, you know, lieutenant kind of um, beings. Well, uh, so there's two lengthy passages I want to read. And I hope you can really slow down and think through this because they're about listening. And this is what God tells them in Leviticus. And then we're going to read another passage through uh, from Deuteronomy. And so this is what uh, Yahweh tells his own people. This is from Leviticus 26, starting in verse 3. I'm going to read all the way down through uh, verse, hmm, verse 46. So this is quite a lengthy reading. And I hope you'll settle in and uh, just listen to the narrative here. So God says, verse 3, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last from the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword will not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. 
I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. And I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. Okay, I'm going to stop right there and look at what all God is promising here, uh, that he's going to take care of them of them in their lifetimes, this looks like. It doesn't look like a, a promise for you know thousands, millions of years away or in the afterlife. He's going to secure them in their land, in their physical lifetimes there in Israel. Uh, yet all of this is a conditional. It begins with the words, if. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will dot, dot, dot. Now, a lot of people don't like that. Oh, no, God's blessing should be for everybody no matter what. Well, sorry, God's the one who decides what reality is. And this was a conditional. So with that in mind, uh, let's go on here in verse 14. But if you will not listen to me, and again, listening is the theme of this episode. If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. Uh-oh, here it comes. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. I will, and your strength uh, shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Okay, I'm going to take a break right there after this paragraph. Uh, obviously, this is if you won't listen to me. This is the bad stuff that he's going to do. And uh, let me just point out here that God's got a reason for all this. He's wanting these people to do what's right, even if he has to push them to do it. Even if he has to punish them and make them suffer to do it, he wants them to volunteer to do this right, and he's willing to discipline them for that purpose. Now, one line in here I did want to talk about, uh, talking about verse uh, 19, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Uh, this is worth some examination, and uh, I think I'm afraid I'm just going to um, uh, stir stir the waters here and not really get into it too much. But I think the idea here is that your heavens like iron. Well, wait a minute. That would be like being under a, a hardened dome that you can't see through, you can't get through, you can't travel through it, and so there's no way up. And then with the earth below them like bronze, uh, no way down. You can't go there either, or you don't want to be there. Um, so 
this is sort of the idea of a trapped people or uh, people who have no way to escape, uh, nothing to look forward to, no way to get out of this earth business. And uh, so whatever the particulars of this that God had in mind, it doesn't sound good. And he said, their strength shall be spent in vain and your land will not yield its increase. The trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So he's in control of their food supply in Israel. And he was going to use that if he had to, to get their attention. And he's telling them all of this ahead of time. Now, so it's not just every day you're a slave in Egypt and then some God comes to get you. And then, oh, it turns out to be like the most high God, the God of all gods, the king of all kings, right? And so now you got to find out, well, what's he like? What does he have in mind for us? Oh, well, he seems to have this sort of lofty thing where we follow his precepts and his commands, his decrees. Well, what if we don't want to? Well, he really wants us to do that, and he's going to press us to do that. And he's telling us ahead of time. Well, that's mighty merciful, isn't it? And, you know, just look like you're telling your own child, okay, look, I told you to do this thing. If you don't do it, you need to understand I'm going to spank you. And uh, you might think through that. Do you want a spanking? And the child says, no. Okay, then maybe you should stop what you're doing and go do the thing. You get to choose, but the right thing to choose is to do what I tell you, right? So this is what Yahweh is doing at this point. So he goes on after he's told them all of this. And he says, I'm going to do all these things to you if you don't obey. But then he goes on, verse 21. Then, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, seven times over. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. So, okay, great. Now he's bringing in outsiders to uh, go after them. Uh, then it goes on, and if by this discipline you were not turned uh, to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. See, the last he was going to let the beast in to strike him. Now he's going to do it himself, he says. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy." So even if you gather up in your cities from these uh, invading armies that I send against you, and this is other humans, uh, it won't work. There's just going to be pestilence among your city, and you're going to fall into the hands of the enemy anyway. So he goes on in verse 26. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall break your, bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But... If in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you." Let me stop right here and explain this a bit. These high places, uh, they would go up on hills and build other uh, structures high 
in order to worship other gods, which they were not supposed to do. As being part of Israel, you only worship Yahweh and not the others. Uh, the other nations had their gods to worship because God had put them in charge of those others, but uh, they were not in charge of Israel. Yahweh was doing that. And yes, he had some angelic help to do that, but it was very clear you were to worship Yahweh only, and the angels would not let you worship them. Uh, although in some of the other nations, they were not holy angels, and they did uh, want the people to worship them in ways that would undermine Yahweh as being the most high God. So he goes on, And I will lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas, that is, their sacrifices that they made, uh, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Now, if you know much about Old Testament history, you'll know that this did indeed happen, that there were uh, captivities where they were taken off. Uh, the Babylonian captivity, of course, is the most famous of that and two instances of that. So the people are hauled out of the land of Israel and scattered among the nations in that region of planet Earth that's generally around the Mediterranean. So these things did come to pass, at least in part. And going on, uh, there's about two more paragraphs here. He says, Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. So he's talking about the, the land mass of Israel. Uh, While you are in your enemy's lands, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Well, it's supposed to have been cared for nicely all along, but he's saying if you're not going to obey me, uh, you know, even the land needs a rest from you. I assume this is some sort of figurative uh, speaking from God. If it has any literal thing to it, I don't understand that yet. Uh, going on, verse 35, As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left... I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And ye shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And ye shall perish among the nations. The land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of the fathers, they shall, not, they shall rot away like them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will, will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. That is, I am Yahweh their God. But 
I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord, Yahweh. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. So this last paragraph here is quite in contrast, right? There's a reason that God would discipline the people so hard for their sins. It's to get them to turn back. And the goal of it is for them to turn back. He says, but if they will confess their iniquity and so forth and turn back, then I'll take them back and I'll stay faithful to it. So look what he's doing. He's setting them up uh, for what to expect. And of course, we know this is true because he sends Jesus to be the sacrifice that covers all their sins. Uh, would they all buy into that? Of course not. Many of them rejected Jesus even then, and we'll talk about that. But look at what Yahweh is like. He is super serious about the people behaving well, and he's just not having it if they don't. But he's not just waiting around to pounce. Aha, I got you. Now I can kill you or, or torture you or something. He's telling them ahead of time, look, don't make me do this because I'm going to do it if you aren't faithful. And so imagine being one of them and discovering, well, what's the nature of this Yahweh who came to get us out of Egypt? And some of them would be saying, oops, I don't like this God. Why can't we have an unrighteous God who lets us behave as we like? Well, they're kind of stuck with Yahweh, right? And uh, if that's a problem, consider the alternative being without him. <clears throat> now, there's more of this, and uh, it'll take just a few more minutes to read, uh, but I really want us to cover it. Now, this is a, a very similar speech from Moses, but this is not in Leviticus. This is going to be in Deuteronomy in chapter 28. And so let's go through this, because I want you to uh, hear the same and hear more of the foundation that's laid here. In Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 1, Again, he's speaking to the people. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field, Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and, and all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. All the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity and the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, with the land that the Lord God swore the fathers to give you. 
the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens. Remember in the previous, uh, it said the heavens would be like uh, bronze. Well, here they're opened, it says. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give you the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. In other words, they would not be in need. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall go up and not down, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I commanded, command you today to the right hand or to the left, we've discussed this before, to go after other gods to serve them. So here he is, again, talking about all these blessings he's going to pour out on them. And uh, we need to be very careful here to understand he's not talking to us here. This is not about us. I mean, God is great to us and has uh, many treasures to give us, but he's not going to take us to Judea and put us out on some farm someplace and make our crops do well. This is uh, an historical event here. This is him uh, working in real time in the real history of Israel. Uh, this is not some proclamation to all peoples everywhere. And so we need to be aware of that. Otherwise, we get ourselves into some uh, really unrealistic expectations. Oh, I bought a goat, and I thought by now I'd have 100 goats. But for some reason, God's not blessing me. Well, wait a minute. God didn't write this to you. God didn't send Moses to tell you this. He sent Moses to tell the Israelites this uh, and quite a long time ago in a different place and circumstance. So we need to keep that straight. So in the interest of time, I'm going to um, skip the reading of the rest of chapter 28 in Deuteronomy. I just want to read you a little bit uh, from chapter 29, just a couple of verses here, uh, starting in verse 24. God is talking about, again, what's going to happen if you don't obey, and once he comes in, basically wrecks the land and then spreads them all out over the place. And he says, And all the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat, the heat of his great anger? And then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the, anger of the Lord was kindled against this land bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. Okay, so Yahweh had put all the other nations other than Israel under these gods, these lesser Elohim, these angel-type beings, these sons of God, and they were to be administrators over the nations in some way. And so that is a huge topic for further study. And yet, you have to know that to make sense out of this other gods thing and don't worship other gods. There were other gods. They were not the same as Yahweh. Everybody knew it uh, between God and Yahweh, and yet Satan is the one who, of course, wanted to put his own throne up higher than God's throne, and you get that from elsewhere in the scriptures. We won't go into that today. So there's this rebellion against Yahweh, and some of these other characters were teaching their people in their different countries uh, poorly. They were not administering them well. They were not keeping justice going and so forth. 
And that is a lot of the story of the Bible. Now, God was going to um, punish Israel if they did not obey because they had his direct leadership and his direct teaching and such. And they, of all people, ought to have obeyed. Uh, but so the question was, well, who are they going to listen to? Well, this became a, a constant source of frustration to God because Israel, for the most part, did not listen. They'd have times when a few uh, special characters among them would rise up and be uh, men and women of honor and who would listen to God, but many of them didn't. Uh, listen to a lament here of God from Psalm 81. I want to start in verse 8. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Oh, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. So put yourself in God's position here. He wants to bless these people, but they're just not listening. It's as if he's saying, look, I'd take care of your problems. I'd protect you from these others, but they would not listen. So they're bringing this on themselves. Okay, so uh, pretty much this sums up the whole Old Testament. Uh, God kept sending uh, prophets to the people to get them to listen, continue to tell them what was going to happen. He would punish them in various ways with this or that punishment, uh, whether it's military things or sickness things or whatever. And uh, some listened along all those generations. Many, many did not. So along comes Jesus. You get to Matthew 21, and Jesus tells a parable about this. He says uh, in verse 33, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and leased it to the tenants, and went into another country. This, of course, is uh, an allusion to Israel. Uh, it is as the vineyard with a fence around it, and it's got everything it needs inside of it. It's got a wine press. Uh, it's got a uh, tower to be able to um, you know, guard it from to see what's going on. And it was leased to tenants, and then the master of this vineyard went away to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. But the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. So are you with me so far? Uh, God spent all this time trying to get Israel to give what it owed him. 
and they were not listening. They were not interested in being godly and following his commands and understanding his precepts and such. And so they mistreated the prophets. Uh, they killed many of them. They uh, would not listen to many of them, disrespected them. So verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those servants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God shall be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, of course, this is right before the Holy Week, uh, the original events in the Bible. Jesus will be dead not many days after this event. But this parable, he's telling it to who were the leaders of Israel at that time in the first century. And the parable is about himself. They, he will send his son saying, surely they'll listen to him. Surely they'll respect my son. So after all this time, still... And, and we're many, many, many hundreds of years in at this point. Still, not even in God's own chosen nation of Israel were the people listening. Now, there were exceptions. Sure, that's understood. But generally, was the nation listening? No, it wasn't. This was such a huge problem. And of course, had they been listening... Would Jesus have had to die? Well, that's a whole different uh, question. But had they been listening, they certainly would not have crucified Jesus. They, they would not have been the ones going after, uh, trying to push the crucifixion, right? And so uh, that much is certain. But this listening problem, uh, you know, it, it typified the entire nation. It typified their culture. Of course, this was not accidental because it typified what the average uh, Israelite was like. And I think it typifies our culture too, that not many people listen, even though many are aware of God, aware of Jesus, but they don't listen great. And this is not an uncommon problem. In fact, I'm going to submit that everybody has this problem every day and they either overcome it in that day or they don't. Uh, Peter, as great as he was in many ways, he had a hard time listening sometimes. Uh, listen to this, Matthew 16, uh, verse uh, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. 
you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, so who should have been the world's foremost authority on what was about to happen to Jesus if it's not Jesus, right? The the Son of God who knows, um, he didn't know the, the day or hour when he would return, but there's no reason to believe he didn't know everything else. And so he tells them how it's going to be, and Peter decides, oh, no, no, that's... That's not going to happen. Well, okay, Peter, you're not listening. He just told you what it's going to be. And you weren't listening. And how, you know, regrettable that would be uh, to Peter, this kind of behavior. And of course, you know, he changed from that. He was still uh, vulnerable to it later. He was even corrected by Paul once later for uh, sort of going back on part of the understanding of the gospel and such. Uh, and, of course, he corrected that again, too. So he had to constantly keep this battle going to stay uh, neither to the left nor the right, in, in that manner of speaking. And so uh, then Jesus goes on. He says, uh, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's the priority here? Listening to yourself or listening to Jesus? For what profit or what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that last line is a great example of the things that so many Christians refuse to listen to today. They will insist that Jesus did not come in his kingdom, even though they have Jesus right here saying that it would happen in the lifetime of some of those to whom he was talking that day. But the story goes on. Uh, Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good that we are here? Or it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So let's back up in history. It starts out, Adam's not listening, Eve's not listening, Satan, of course, is not listening. He's off telling them something other than what God had said. Okay, there's three problems right there. It goes on through so many others who um, maybe had spotty track records, sometimes listening, sometimes not. Many not listening at all. So uh, God's had this plan all along. He's going to send Jesus. In fact, this is foreshadowed in, in Genesis 3. 
about your seed and her seed and such. So here he is finally. Jesus is on the scene, and they're having this big moment with Moses and Elijah, and what all was involved in that. That's quite a thing. And so here's Peter, blah, 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 just talking up a storm. You would think he might have been more reflective, uh, but hey, we can pick on Peter. He's probably doing what a lot of us would do. And then this thing happens, this great light and the, the bright cloud and such. And then God says, uh, excuse me, listen to Jesus. <laughs> well, you know, what is this for us? Is this uh, some manner of, of thing that we too need to, to listen to? Well, this was not new. It was not that Jesus had never had a say in the world before. Uh, Jesus was always around, uh, if you understand anything about the two powers doctrine. In the Old Testament, the Jews would write about the two powers of Yahweh, not just one. Well, what does this mean? Of course, uh, many of you would immediately start thinking the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, Godfather and, uh, and the uh, or God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, in the Old Testament, there was certainly two trackable powers of Yahweh. And one of them appears in Proverbs 8, going by the name of wisdom. And I want to read this to you because I think it has a great deal to say, and it talks about listening. So I'm going to read from Proverbs 8, verse 1, uh, and throughout. Does not wisdom call... Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of men, of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Here, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. From my mouth, uh, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous, and there is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil are perverted, or and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just, by me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries." The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, 
before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in this inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is he, and blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life, and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. To me, this passage is so packed, I'm sure I've not yet unpacked it all to understand everything about it. But this, I believe, is um, Jesus talking as a co-partner with God from before the beginning. And of course, we're not told much about before the beginning in Genesis 1. And yet, obviously, God had a before the beginning. He didn't just uh, you know, pop into existence at that point. So the whole appeal of Proverbs 8 is to listen to wisdom. And whose wisdom? Well, it's God's wisdom. It's Jesus. And uh, this is how they do it. And you notice all the talk about righteousness and justice. Yep, that's what they're like. And so... We've looked at how the Jews uh, constantly had a problem with listening. Uh, Peter had it. He overcame it, of course, but it was, you know, always uh, nearby. Like I said, you know, hypocrisy is a, a short journey. <laughs> the road to, to hypocrisy is a short one. And so, so here comes Jesus. He's telling this parable. They're about to kill him because they don't want to hear. They don't want to listen. And while many did, uh, most of them did not. So he tells another parable, a very famous one, and it has something about listening too. And we can, we can learn from this. This is the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because... I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now 
He is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now think about this. This man is in torment because he did not listen. And he's still not listening. Abraham answered him repeatedly, or already, that is, uh, but he uh, questions the answer that he gets and pushes back. He asks for more. He asks for another solution, other than the solution of his own brothers having to repent and do their own listening. So he knows better, and yet he doesn't really know better at all. The man's still a fool, even suffering torments in Hades, separated from the place that was called Abraham's bosom, where the righteous would be. They were aware of each other's presence, but they could not cross over. And this man, even then, doesn't listen. So think about what that says. Think about how a person can choose to be like that. You know, this word repent, he's saying, uh, you know, if someone from the dead goes to them, my brothers will repent. Well, that word means to change your mind. And yet even this man who's suffering apparently is really slow to get it when Abraham explains to him how it works. And so this man's uh, family they didn't need Jesus to die and raise again for them to get it. They just need to listen to what they already had. They already had Moses and the prophets. God had already put all this on the record. We've already read uh, so much of it in this very uh, episode that they had been told, look, you stick with the commands. It'll go well. If you don't, I'm going to punish you. And boy, I hope you turn around then. But if you don't, well, watch out. And so they're just not listening. Well, Jesus has come and gone. He died in the most uh, amazing thing, his, his resurrection. There is no event in world history that tops that. It uh, literally changed the world in, in several ways. And everybody knows about it, hopefully with few exceptions. And yet, does this mean that we're all like Jesus now? Everybody's seen the light and decided to uh, strive to be like Jesus? Well, obviously not. Even in the churches, this is not the case. And I'm afraid that a great number of Christians simply do not know how to listen. When they think they do, They will hear a thing and say, oh, look, a thing. <laughs> and then you go back uh, and watch them later, and they're doing the other thing as before, like they never learned. What's the proverb about a, a, um, 
a hog returning to its uh, wallow in the mud or a dog returning to its vomit. I thought you were done with that. Well, apparently not. You're still going. It's like you never heard. And there are so many things. This, we could just go for weeks on this, this topic. Like where Jesus says to them, okay, you call me Lord, Lord, but why don't you do what I tell you? And so this is nothing new. There was not listening going on then. It's still going on now. And this seems to be what people do unless they decide to become the sort of person who listens, who really considers a thing, uh, takes it at face value, deals with it as it was intended. And I am very sad to say that I don't see this paradigm being very active in the churches today. You can tell them over and over again, they'll still keep doing the same things as before, and they see no problem with it. And then they get suckered into, uh, when they're getting discouraged and they want to leave, oh, bro, you need to stay and help fight for change. Uh, Yeah, that's what somebody was told 20 years ago, and it's still like it was, and maybe even worse. And uh, so it, it's a lie. Stay and fight for change. Oh, the change that you're not fighting for already, right? Why do you want me to stay really? Uh, I don't think you want to change. If you want to change, then let's do it, right? And that's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. It's being corrected and, and taking up the correction and running with it. Well, this is just not... Uh, what typifies the behavior of so many Christians today. And this is a very woeful thing. Yet the promises to those who do listen, who do repent, are eternal life. And uh, we're out of time today to cover that in much detail, but you know it's in there. And we will look at that again soon. I hope this is very sobering. It is to me. Uh, what a waste, uh, because Jesus sacrificed so much, and yet for so many, nah, I don't care, whatever, you know, take it or leave it, or they, of course, just reject it. Well, this is not how it was meant to be. We can live victoriously. We can decide to listen. We can take it to heart. We can learn. Uh, you have to learn at your own pace. You get better and better as you go. No one sits at Jesus' feet and learns nothing who was a willing disciple. It, so, so many people's expectations for this is so utterly low. Well, bro, you know, we're all, uh, you know, fallen and, and sinful, we're wretched worms, and we can't expect, you know, anything to do well. Well, okay, then why do you even like Jesus? Well, he saves us. Okay, saves you from what? From sin? Okay, then how come you're still sinning habitually? Why don't you cut that out? Well, you know, I'm only human. Well, wait a minute. I thought you said there was like God involved in your life. So he's not helping you. Well, <laughs> you see, it's, it's like a, they're, they're cheating. They're twisting it. They're trying to make Jesus into a man with lesser expectations of them than what he really is. And so uh, I hope a lot of these things are coming together. We talked about liars are twisted people. They can't twist the truth, so they have to twist themselves. They have to make believe and try to get other people to make believe and all that. 
And we talked about how exaggeration is lying. And we talked about how we love our labels that are inaccurate about things. And we hide behind them. Well, this is all about us being the image of God and living the way that he wanted us to live. And so many people will say, oh, well, bro, this whole thing today, this is all about old covenant. And we're in the new covenant. Well, you don't understand the Bible. Of course, we're in the new covenant. And yet it's based on the old. And God did not become a God who didn't care for righteousness into one who does. Or vice versa. He didn't turn from somebody who did not care or who did care about righteousness and the one who does not. If you have uh, the Holy Spirit, as so many think they do, why aren't you more righteous than the Jews who wandered so poorlessly or uh, helplessly, so poorly rather is what I mean to say, why aren't you doing better than them rather than the same sort of flailing about uh, culture that's in so many of the churches. So I think, I think something's really missing here. I think what's missing is the listening and the determination to put it into practice. You know, we just had an episode on uh, applying the Bible. Well, okay, here you go. And so let me say this about that. I know we're running long, but hey, that's just what it takes sometimes. Uh, about applying the Bible, how about we start with justice and righteousness? You be just, you be righteous, you love people, you be kind, and let's start with that. And then you can go after the other doctrines after you decide to be a right person. That is so much better than, well, my church teaches the Holy Trinity, and here's 490,000 points about that, and let's get started. Well, okay, uh, let's be good people first and uh, be sure we got that down because that seems to be the most important part. And then we'll deal with the other. Well, some people want to get that backwards, and I believe it's because they don't like to get to the first part about being righteous people. So I knew I would be tortured to end this because it is endless, and, uh, but we have to stop at some place. And so we'll do that from, from here. I'll see what comes next. And um, thanks for joining in.